Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 15th of August, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson. Good to have you back, Mike. Thank you. Myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border, and our very own Mark Anderson, who is reporting from uh, deep in the USA. Um, David, let's get straight on then with uh, the Salman Rushdie story. Yes, this from Friday, brought just after we did the news on Friday. Uh, so we start here with the New York Times. Uh, they report uh, on the attack. They say uh, Salman Rushdie spent years in hiding after the leadership of Iran called for his death following the publication of the novel Satanic Verses. But in recent years, declaring, quote, oh, I have to live my life, end quote, he uh, re-entered society, was appearing uh, frequently around New York City without evident security. On Friday morning, an attacker rushed the stage at Chautauqua uh, Institution uh, in upstate New York, where Mr. Rushdie was uh, scheduled to give a talk. The assailant stabbed Mr. Rushdie, who's 75, in the abdomen and neck, reported the New York Times at that point. Um, now, uh, the uh, attacker here is described by uh, MSN. Um, his name is uh, Hadi Matar. He's been charged with attempted murder. He's 24 years old, born in California, uh, and the state police said the motive for the stabbing was unclear. Um, preliminary law enforcement review of Mata's social media accounts shows he's sympathetic to Shia extremism and Islamic revolutionary guard core causes. So that gives uh, some indication as to the likely motivation. Um, and uh, to pick up here the, the, the story, uh, reported on by the Times on Sunday uh, that Salman Rushdie has been left with life-changing injuries. Um, and his son said that uh, free speech is life itself, as he revealed his father suffered life-changing injuries. Uh, Zafar Rushdie, age 42, said his father remained in a critical condition after being stabbed on stage as he prepared to deliver a lecture. Um, and uh, the... Uh, so this appears to be, uh, he's, he's injured in, in, in the eye. Uh, he may, it seems likely he will lose an eye. He's also uh, had uh, report, reports that uh, nerves have been severed in his arm. And he's, he's also been stabbed in the liver. Uh, and that's been damaged too. So it's extremely serious um, attack. It does seem that uh, he is he's conscious, he's off the ventilator, he's able to talk. Uh, so there's a great deal of optimism that he will live but clearly life-changing injuries is correct uh, now to give a little bit of background to this uh, many will know but it's it's been going on many years uh, the new york times here reports um, how he lived under rushday lived under an iranian death sentence since 1989 um, and the, uh, following the publication of the satanic verses uh, which fictionalized parts of the life of the prophet muhammad with depictions that many Muslims found offensive. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, supreme leader of Iran after the 79 Iranian Revolution, issued a fatwa on February 14, 1989, ordering Muslims to kill Mr. Rushdie and putting a price on his head of several million dollars. And um, the New York Times uh, continues here. Uh, Mr. Rushdie lived in London, immediately went into hiding. He had 24 hours protection from the British police moving every three days, and then he lived in a fortified safe house for most of the next decade. Um, the fatwa was maintained by Iran's government after the death of the Ayatollah and um, for 10 years, when uh, in 1998, the president, Kat Katamani, uh, who was considered relatively liberal, said Iran no longer supported the killing. Uh, Mr. Rushdie then began to make public appearances. The fatwa remains in place with a bounty attached from a semi-official Iranian religious foundation. And also uh, on background information here, uh, this is not the first attack, um, and uh, nor is it the first successful attack associated with the satanic verses. Uh, here we see again from, from the New York Times, uh, um, Rushdie attack recalls the 1991 killing of his Japanese translator, the translator uh, uh, Hitoshi uh, Igarashi was stabbed to death age 44 um, uh, at, uh, at 
I don't know, the university that I can't pronounce, uh, northeast of, of Tokyo. Um, no arrests have ever been made and the crime remains unsolved. So this is a, a long history of, of extreme violence and there was also, a, as we'll come to, a, a further attempt on Salman Rushdie's life um, it, whilst he was in Britain. And this has been responded to by uh, obviously a great outpouring, particularly from authors, on the subject of free speech and on the subject of wishing uh, Salman Rushdie well and wishing him, um, wishing that he survives and he makes a, a good recovery. Uh, one of the authors who, were, who was uh, putting this idea forward of wishing um, Salman Rushdie well was J.K. Rowling. Um, she said um, via tweet, feeling very sick right now, let him be okay. Um, and in response, uh, she received a tweet, don't worry, you are next. Uh, police are now investigating, Police Scotland are now investigating this tweet. It appears that it came from an account in Pakistan and has now been taken down. So this does show um, a, a very um, a high degree of, of, of anger and why it's directed against J.K. Rowland is not entirely clear. Um, and when we come to the position of Iran in this, uh, we've got Al Jazeera reporting here. Um, and Iran says only Salman Rushdie and supporters are to blame for the attack. So Tehran is denied having any knowledge or link to the stabbing. Um, but they've also said that they consider that no one except Rushdie and his supporters are deserving of blame or even condemnation for the attack. Um, no one has the right to blame the Isla Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, and uh, he also added that uh, Rushdie had exposed himself to public indignation through insulting holy Islamic values and crossing the red line of 1.5 billion Muslims. Um, State-run media uh, at the IRNA uh, said at least one other person tried to kill Rushdie following Khomeini's religious ruling. Um, and that refers to a, 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 a man called um, Mustafa Mazi, who died after a bomb. He was priming from Rushdie premature, prematurely exploded in London in 1989. He was the first martyr, um, said uh, the uh, Iranian uh, official media. And um, they published a, an image of a shrine dedicated to him in Iran. So the, uh, the, the there's denial of any involvement coming from Iran, but a great deal of support for the act and a great deal of applause for the act. So their uh, denial of any responsibility is, is hugely weakened by that, uh, by that response. David, I just wanted to say that uh, horrific as this attack is, I find it just fascinating that it occurs just at the point that Iran is absolutely in the crosswires of uh, US, UK and NATO. And of course, Iran has just uh, signed, as I understand, signed a deal with Russia to provide drones, which are going to be um, required on the battlefield in Ukraine. Um, it is strange how these things happen at around the same time, but uh, uh, a really bad incident. Uh, indeed. Any closing thoughts, David? Well, we'll come back to more of this. Um, there is both hypocrisy, and the Iranians were pointing out the hypocrisy on the part of the West, and, and, and that is correct. There's hypocrisy on the, on the basis of free speech, but there's also a great deal of trouble uh, within Islam, and um, there is a tendency not to want to talk about the problems within Islam uh, within the West, and, and that's not good either. And we'll get to all of these subjects later in the news. OK, let's move on to uh, Ukraine and defence. Uh, and, well, Ben Wallace was very excited over the last day or two uh, to announce that Norway has joined the UK-led international effort to train brave men and women, is how he described it, from the armed forces of Ukraine to the highest standards. Uh, the UK-based training programme has already provided vital military skills to soldiers now serving on the front line, including Boris, we shouldn't forget. So, uh, and Boris should be sent uh, with all the trainees, in my opinion. As fast as possible. As fast as possible, yes. Uh, but uh, anyway, in the meantime, I just wanted to mention this. I'm, I'm interested to get thoughts from David and, and Mark on this. Uh, this is uh, Ivan uh, Nechev, sorry, uh, the Russian, well, one of the Russian foreign ministry spokespeople. Uh, and he was being asked about uh, the potential for 
Switzerland to intervene in peace talks, uh, or at least intervene between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and he made this point. He said the Swiss were indeed interested in what we thought about the possibility of them representing Ukraine's interests in Russia and Russia in Ukraine. Uh, he went on to say, we responded very clearly that Switzerland, unfortunately, has lost its neutral status and therefore could not act either as a mediator or as, as a representative of interests. Uh, as you know, Bern has joined the Ill illegal Western sanctions against Russia. Uh, Switzerland supports the anti-human Nazi regime in Kiev and participates in an aggressive Russophobic or Russophobic uh, uh, campaign again, uh, launched by the West and Ukraine. So just uh, very briefly, uh, David, I just was interested in your thoughts on that, because uh, particularly with uh, with Ireland more or less giving up its neutrality now as well, we seem, seem to uh, uh, see this being a, a thread which is moving across previously neutral countries. Uh, but fascinated at Russia's position here, is this then moving away, I wonder, from uh, the, the sort of Western financial system, which was one of the main reasons Switzerland was neutral in the first place. That's a very interesting point, Mike. Uh, the constant pressure on neutral countries to align themselves uh, does seem to be unrelenting. And we've seen this uh, resulting in, uh, for example, neutral Ireland uh, deploy troops um, to, to war zones, uh, not just as peacekeepers, but uh, deploy troops. And uh, this is uh, obviously change um, a very long-standing position in Switzerland. Um, the move away from the conventional uh, Western um, monetary system and banking system as the core of everything that happens in the world is also one of the narratives that's accompanying the war in Ukraine, because it's what's been shown here is that the, the Russians have been have been excluded from that banking system but seem to be muddling on anyway and uh, building up alternative structures. And once these alternative structures are in place and, and are established and are communicating with such nations as India and China, the two most populous nations in the world, uh, then the Swiss and the London and the New York banking system will have much less power. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that, David. Well, let's move on to a bit of an update in Ukraine and uh, just pop on uh, one of Patrick Henningsen's slides from Friday, which was very uh, colourful. We've added something to it because, of course, it was introduced as uh, Ukraine and NATO versus Russia, which is how many people see the battle in Ukraine. But the reality is, of course, we've got many uh, people who regard uh, Ukrainians as their brothers. So we effectively have Ukrainians fighting Ukrainians uh, all at the whim of NATO. But uh, let's just have a little look at uh, Ben Wallace uh, speaking a little while ago. And, uh, well, let's concentrate on what this man did and did not say. I think it's incredibly important that people understand that the fighting is still going on and it is still seeing the loss of life of both innocent uh, civilians and indeed military personnel of the Ukrainian armed forces, all of whom are fighting bravely on a day to day basis. But it is also the case that Russia are starting to fail in many areas. They have failed so far and are unlikely to ever succeed in occupying uh, Ukraine. Their invasion has faltered and constantly been remodified to the extent they are really only focusing in parts of the south and in the east, a long, long way away from their three-day so-called special operation. Three days are now over 150 days and nearly six months in with huge significant losses of both equipment and indeed Russian personnel. Not a surprise, President Putin was warned by friends and adversaries alike from presidents and prime ministers not to do this unwise and illegal thing. He's ignored it and we're here today to show that six months on, we're still as determined as an international community to stand up to him and to stand up to the threat and to help Ukraine re-establish its sovereign territory. Thank you. Well, Mike, I, I found this uh, clip astonishing. Um, to me, he seemed very unsettled. Uh, there was some, I, I'm going to call it garbling of words. Let's have a look. He, Russia are failing is uh, where he started off. Um, but he, he was stuttering. He looked uncomfortable. Uh, for some reason, he's always looking across at the side. And the people behind him do not look very happy at what's being delivered here. 
why do I think Ben Wallace is under pressure? I think it's because he knows that what he is saying is not true. Let's have a look at what is happening because Ukraine is losing this war. This is very clear. The Ukrainian casualties, a great many people who are uh, analysing what is coming out of Ukraine know that the daily number of killed is well over 100 a day, particularly now the fighting on the Eastern Front has wound up with huge numbers of wounded. And remember that the bulk of these uh, casualties, the killed, are due to Russian shelling. Ukraine is critically short of key weapons and ammunition, and the Ukrainians are stating this themselves, whether it's come in from uh, social media from Ukrainian troops or whether it's been Ukrainian officials talking to international press. So this is the reality. Ukraine critically short of key weapons, critically short of ammunition. And uh, what, where else can we go? Well, of course, Ukraine has no viable air force. That doesn't exist anymore as a result of the uh, Russian attacks in the early stages and the continuing uh, down, <coughs> excuse me, downing of Russian air forces. There's no air defense systems that are effective to any great extent. And what we now know for certain is that the US and the Western HIMARS and anti-tank systems are having little effect. And I have to say that over the weekend, Brian Valetic, who's been giving very good reports in the new Atlas, uh, was reading from a US uh, military article, uh, which stated that even US troops only achieve something like a 19% success rate using the types of anti-tank weapon that are going into Ukraine. That's a pretty astonishing statistic. Uh, Ukraine is unable to mount the claimed counter-offensive in the south um, or the east, or in fact the east, but the main offensive that they have kept talking about was to be in the south, and they certainly haven't achieved the claimed one million man army. That was utter fantasy. Uh, the Ukrainian troops are refusing to fight and or deserting on the front line, especially the Eastern Front. And the Ukraine, Ukraine troops are losing their vital prepared strategic defense lines at an accelerating pace. So it's very clear to all trained military observers that the Russians may be moving slowly, but this is in order to minimize their own casualties. But they're now breaking through the last of the Ukrainian strategic defense lines. Russia continues to demonstrate superior weapons, hypersonic, experimental and conventional, as well as demonstrating what seems to be an unlimited supply of ammunition. And these are the words coming out of the Ukrainian uh, military themselves. So don't take it as being a pro-Russian line. The Ukrainians are saying that when it comes to shelling in particular, it is though the shells come straight out the factory and onto the battlefield. And this means that Russia is clearly winning. So Russia's waging a highly effective artillery war to destroy prepared Ukrainian defences and entrenched troops. And this is what many people don't realise because the BBC doesn't want to talk about this. It's not that Russia is simply moving through a relatively light battlefield. It's fighting its way through these very, very um, well-prepared defences. In fact, they've been prepared over as much as 10 years, and uh, the Russians are being very careful in how they're doing this. Uh, Russia is successfully leading its uh, separatist Ukrainian allies to prosecute the war, and it's minimising its own military casualties and also civilian casualties. And data coming out of the Ukrainian war surprisingly suggests that certainly now uh, civilian casualties are very low compared to other conflicts where uh, civilians have been locked into a position on the battlefield. Russia continues to dismantle these prepared Ukrainian defences and thus is achieving a strategic advance. And of course, all of this is simply denied by the West. Um, so what have we got now? Russia's already on the outskirts of Bakhmut. And this is the key move to dismantling the Severs Bakhmut defense line. And in doing this or making this attack, Ukraine is suffering incredibly high casualties, so high that the morale of troops is breaking down. And uh, the, the captures of um, urban areas continues. Pisky, Udyev, Vashina, and others are reported over the weekend. So Russia is continuing to win this war. 
the Ukrainian casualties go up. And of course, it's the efforts of Ben Wallace in pumping in the arms and the so-called training of these uh, young Ukrainian troops. This is causing the casualties. So let's have a look at some statistics, which you can only seem to find via social media. So I'm quoting the sources here. People can check it. I'm taking it uh, uh, when I read this as it makes sense as to what's being said. But this is uh, Vladimir Desenko, and he's produced some infographics about artillery, where he's saying supplies are falling from 200 plus units per month to zero in June and July. Supplies of helicopters and long range missile systems have decreased. And it goes on to say that the US and EU militaries have been complaining about a drop in their own defense capability due to assistance in Kiev. And uh, perhaps the answer to the reasons for the decline in supplies is simple. The person says the arsenals are emptying. Well, this is the infographic and really this should be front page on every newspaper in UK and the BBC. And uh, credit to the columnist who's produced this and I'm taking the report at face value. So some of the images are a little bit blurred, but we, we, we can understand easily uh, the point. So here is US military aid, 9.1 billion US dollars, and the sums that have been coming in on a monthly basis are shown. So money's being pumped into Ukraine. They're still not winning the war. Uh, but the key issue is that the, the whole of the Ukrainian army is now paid by the US. Uh, David, this makes it probably the largest mercenary force in the world, or possibly that the world's ever seen. United States is paying for the entire army. At what point does the United States become at war with Russia? We, uh, we, we may be coming on to that in a second. Okay, good, good question. Well, let's move on. This is other military aid to Ukraine, uh, 12 plus billion dollars. And of course, we can see that UK, which hasn't got money for the roads or schools or the NHS or helping the elderly, has 3.8 billion to uh, pile in for uh, ammunition and munitions to Ukraine. And uh, in fact, our contribution seems to dwarf that of the European Union. But probably that's uh, as per normal. Here's some of the detail. Uh, we can see that with regard to mortars and anti-armor systems, uh, back in February and March, um, Ukraine had into the 10, 11,000s of these, uh, but these have steadily dropped. And what is the reason for this? Well, of course, equipment's being captured on the battlefield by the Russians or destroyed on the battlefield by the Russians. Um, so downward trend there. If we go to tanks and armored vehicles, um, we're seeing reports of We've taken one particular type, or the journalist has taken one particular type here. So uh, he's saying that about 200 plus vehicles at the start of the war, and even supposedly with resupply, we're down to very tiny numbers, which are not going to cause the Russians any problems at all. If we go to artillery, uh, with all the hype about the M777s, they increased up to 90, but the Russians have been destroying those at a very steady rate on the battlefield. And the ammunition that was provided, uh, you can just uh, see in the uh, text mid-screen, uh, 560,155 millimeter artillery rounds and 72,105 millimeter artillery rounds. But the, uh, the ammunition is being destroyed on the battlefield as well. Uh, if we come into uh, long-range weapons here, uh, what do we see? Well, we see at the beginning of the conflict, the Ukrainians could feel 16 of effectively Russian equivalents of these systems. Uh, the 12 HIMARS came on, online, uh, but uh, from the statistics that I am seeing, and I believe they're correct, already half of these have been destroyed by the Russians. So the reality on the battlefield is that the Ukrainians are losing. They're losing men, they're losing ground, they're losing strategic positions. And this means clearly that the Russians are winning. But you wouldn't believe so if you look at the UK Ministry of Defence, because this is their latest map, where in tiny writing, Russian attacks and troop locations are shown. But it's as if the Ukrainians have got everything under control when the opposite is true. So I believe that the UK Ministry of Defence is misleading the British public 
by omissions. It is simply not telling them the truth. And this caught my attention. I found it fascinating. Here is defense intelligence switching public interest away from the fighting because, of course, Ukraine is losing. And uh, what are they doing? Trying to stick a knife into Russia because they're trying to organize elections in the Donetsk People's Republic. Well, the question is, are the Russians trying to organize this referendum in the DPR or is it the uh, government, in inverted commas, of DPR that's arranging this? The uh, Ministry of Defence very keen to imply that it's the Russians. Well, indeed, I, I, I'm saying it like that, Mike, because ultimately, of course, the Russians have had to stabilise the battlefield and make those areas safe. But yes, at the end of the day, it's the people who did not want to be under this very uh, brutal Ukrainian government that are, are organising these uh, uh, elections. And of course, the UK government doesn't like this. So it's spun into propaganda. Well, let's just end this little segment by having a look at Zelensky at work. And of course, a few days ago, Mr. Zelensky was very unhappy because Am Amnesty International was starting to ask very simple, uh, but uh, accurate questions about what appears to be uh, the use of, um, or sorry, what appears to be Ukrainian military using civilians and civilian areas as cover. Zelensky not too happy in this little clip. Російський удар по Україні стає виправданим. Агресія проти нашої держави є нічим не спровокованою, загарбницькою і відверто терористичною. І якщо хтось робить звіт, в якому жертва і агресор нібито в чомусь однакові, якщо аналізуються якісь дані про жертву, а що робив агресор в цей час ігнорується, то з цим не можна миритись. So a not very skillful deflection is what he's trying there by focusing in Russia is the aggressor, Ukraine is the victim. And because that's the status, according to Zelensky, it's not fair to ask any questions about why the Ukrainian military have been using uh, civilians in, in uh, Ukraine for cover. And of course, what is the result? Actually, the result is that um, agencies are beginning to ask questions about uh, Zelensky. Let's pop this Newsweek one on screen here. Uh, so this is um, uh, the Zelensky narrative is shifting opinion. And if we have a look at it, it says in just the last few days, the narrative, the narrative have palpably shifted. First, Thomas Friedman of the New York Times set up a trial balloon, a clear signal straight from one of the White House's most dependable stenographers. And what did uh, the comments say? Dear reader, the Ukraine war is not over. And privately, US officials are a lot more concerned about Ukraine's leadership than they are letting on. There is deep mistrust between the White House and Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky, considerably more than has been reported. And I find that a very interesting situation. Mark, I don't know whether you'd just like to respond on that very quickly, but actually there is now a lot of material suggesting that the White House is wobbling because they no longer trust Zelensky and they certainly don't trust his uh, leadership uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine. Ukraine is losing this war, even though Zelensky says otherwise. Yeah, the... There's a lot to unpack here, but the, the Swiss thing you guys mentioned a little while back, if we were getting accurate news, if these things were more widely known, Switzerland probably would have maintained its traditional and much respected neutrality. And that, of course, gave us the Geneva Conventions that Switzerland would not you know, get involved either way or would not be biased. And then that would give us a way to defuse this, this war and save the cannon fodder, the Ukrainians who are being sent to the front lines um, unwittingly of what's going on. They're being told Zelensky in their own country is a hero. He clearly isn't. It looks to me, if you had to sum it up, that Ukraine is being taken apart by the oligarchs. And I think the Mossad is involved with this Nazi unit. That's my understanding from some, some US sources. But at any rate, 
I think Ukraine as a whole is being betrayed and Russia is just trying to protect its interests. We all might not agree with Russia. There's some who will agree, some who will disagree. But I think Russia is largely sticking to its national interests, and that's why it's remaining in the East and the South, as Ben Wallace talked about. I don't think Russia wants to go a whole lot further. They want to protect those people in that part that are more uh, in allegiance with Russia, that, are, that feel they're being tyrannized by the Ukrainian regime ever since 2014. And I, I think these are the real dynamics. And if this stuff was known, I think this war could be put to bed. And foreign aid, just a quick comment, foreign aid traditionally does not go to what we think it goes to. If it's humanitarian foreign aid, it usually ends up in the hands of the leaders and big business interests and never gets to the poor people that need it. If it's military foreign aid, it's anybody's guess if this stuff is really actually helping Ukraine's military or not, or is it helping other interests? Um, there's even rumors, it's not really confirmed yet, but there's even rumors that Monsanto and large agricultural interests are trying to buy up a lot of Ukraine. And I'm looking into that a little bit more, but there's so many dynamics at work, but the truth is the one thing that is just barely getting out now, as you just illustrated with Thomas Friedman. So okay. th there's, a lot, there's, there's a lot to consider is what I'm saying. Thank, thank you very much for, for that, Mark. And if we switch across to David, does this mean that we can criticize the regime in Ukraine, David? Well, no, and this is this is a, a point I want to make in contrast to uh, the the pronouncements that are coming out uh, around the Salman Rushdie attack, uh, namely that the West represents free speech and um, and the protection of uh, of the individual uh, against violence and against uh, oppression. Um, it transpires, Brian. This is not so. Not in the Ukraine, at any rate, and not if you're. And a journalist who is speaking out uh, in ways which anger the regime. Now, we've covered this before, but it's worth just um, going back to the issue one more time. Alina Lip, journalist, uh, is, is, is German. Uh, she's, um, um, she's working in um, the Donbass, in the, in the Russian-occupied areas of, of eastern Ukraine, and uh, the German authorities are, are not happy. She writes, the German authorities have now started to persecute me. First, they deleted my material on the internet. Then they blocked my bank account. Then they blocked the bank account of my father. And yesterday, I got this letter from the German authorities uh, that they have now opened a criminal case against me. So these are the documents in the, in the Germans, uh, this, uh, and for Germans, the support of the special operation in, the, in Ukraine is a criminal act for which you can get three years in prison. What is interesting in the letter is that they are not going to invite me to a hearing because, quote, this would disturb the investigation. So they are persecuting me, but they don't want to hear me. And it, it wasn't just her father that was targeted, her mother too. So if you anger the regime, they'll go for your, they'll go for your parents. Who do you love? We'll go for them, right? So uh, the, the mother of uh, this journalist uh, was threatened by the German authorities. Uh, she's now safe in Russia. Um, that phrase alone should cause us to have uh, a, a bit of reflection. Um, uh, she, she had to leave Germany because one day she could no longer pay with a bank card or withdraw money from her bank account. Uh, it was all arrested and she began to receive threats that she too would be arrested. So this is the nature of free speech and free journalism and free inquiry and free opinion in the West, it is not exactly, Brian, as advertised. Uh, not at all. So we just uh, end this segment here with an article. We will do more on this because it's so outrageous. Uh, but apparently, uh, according to UK intelligence services, uh, uh, people deep inside uh, the Russian government are now wanting to talk with Western intelligence uh, over an end to the bloody war in Ukraine. And this very, very secretive material has been shared, luckily, uh, with the Daily Mirror. However, when you read the report, it's difficult to see what, if any, substance is there. But I find this very curious because uh, many very good commentators on the war in Ukraine were saying some time ago that uh, once uh, Putin was happy uh, that they were going to move through the last of the Ukrainian defences, he would make an approach to the West. And if the West rejected it, 
then this was the go-ahead that uh, Russia could work with its Ukrainian allies in order to secure as much of the country as it needed for its own um, defence needs. So I wonder if something has been twisted here, but I don't know. Mm, indeed. OK, let's move on then. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please uh, head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You could pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, or, but in any case, please do share as much of our material on the various platforms as you can. OK, um, well, let's bring Mark Anderson in with us. And uh, Mark, one of the subjects that you've been uh, looking at is election fraud in the US. It's remarkable, isn't it, that as the US and UK stand on the world stage, uh, claiming that they are squeaky clean democracies, uh, there's much going on that seems to deny that. So. Let's bring this one up. It's NPR, and the headline is From the Grassroots to the Top of the Ticket, Election Denial Looms Large in GOP. What have you been seeing? Well, of course, NPR is National Public Radio. That's a branch of PBS. That's our equivalent of the BBC here. So we'll start with that, make that very clear. Uh, what we're seeing here is elections being looked at as an article of faith and that you cannot look into them. It literally is becoming that way in the US. And one of the reasons I bring this forth is because when you look at the UK uh, newspapers that try and convey this American news to UK audiences, such as The Guardian and The Daily Mail, they think they've got it all locked down that they're gonna tell British audiences and European audiences what's going on in the States. But all they do is repeat the same narrative that you would hear from the BBC or our equivalent PBS and NPR. And it's all complete distortions and lies. And one of the things the article you just showed says, um, in Republican politics, one of the biggest issues in the 2022 election is the 2020 election. In at least eight states so far, Republicans have picked candidates for secretary of state who deny the results of the last presidential election. How dare they? This is despite the fact that there's not a shred of evidence that calls President Biden's victory into question. If elected, they would become, these Republicans, the chief election officers in their states. So the, the media is trembling that Republicans running for governor as well as secretary of state in different states are winning their primaries. And many of the primary nominating elections are over now in the US. Now we're looking at the general actual elections in November. And a, a lot of these secretaries of state uh, potentials and uh, hopefuls for governors in their states, some of them probably incumbents seeking re-election, they don't believe the 2020 election results either. And so the media is trying to keep a lid on this. They're trying to run interference and they've got to keep this article of faith out there. Like you said, Brian, that these Western elections like the UK, like the US are squeaky clean. Nothing significant could ever go wrong. There could never be fraud. There could never be theft but we have to take it as an article of faith because if you question it, you're almost a Holocaust denier, right? You're an election denier. They're making it almost that bad yeah. in terms right. of a stigma. So Mark, let's have a look at this little film clip because uh, this is uh, just part of the, of the clip itself, but uh, we've got some really excellent comment on what has happened. And uh, you've said that you've got high confidence that what this gentleman is saying is correct. Let's have a look at this clip. The facts say that this is the least safe, least secure, and least honest election that we have ever seen in Georgia. Here are the facts that every Georgia voter needs to know. A U.S. District Court found on October 11, 2020, that the Dominion voting system used in the November 2020 election is unverifiable to the voter and in violation of two Georgia statutes. There are six sworn affidavits of counterfeit mail-in ballots in the Fulton County election results that scale into the tens of thousands of votes. The State Farm Arena video shows at least four violations of Georgia election law. Approximately 43,000 DeKalb County drop box ballots have no chain of custody forms. True votes, geo-tracking research showed evidence of ballot harvesting teams driving repeatedly to drop boxes in Fulton and DeKalb counties. All 
So I've, I've cut out of that, but I'm going to say to our audience, we'll make that clip available for them because the evidence just goes on and on. It's uh, quite an extraordinary little clip. Um, very quickly, Mark, because I want to move you on to the subject of uh, legal immigration in the US, but um, you know the individual that's produced this clip and uh, you, you've said there's been a lot of good work going on in the background. Yeah, Garland is, is second to none. And this is the big scandal here. As they talk about Arizona, they talk about the different states that were pivotal in the November 2020 election. And in Georgia, Garland Favorito's group there, Voter GA, Voters Organized for Trusted Election Results, is doing yeoman service there. They're doing great work. It's unbiased. It's nonpartisan. Other things he would have added there had the video continued. All 350,000 origin, original in-person ballot images in Fulton County are missing in violation of federal and state retention laws. All 393,000 original ballot images in Cobb County are missing in violation of those same retention laws. At least 17,720 certified in-person recount votes have no ballot images in Fulton County. And these are the densely populated counties in and around Atlanta. 18,325 voters had vacant residential addresses according to the Postal Service. 904 voters were registered at a P.O. box address, which is illegal in Georgia law. And get this one, all or large parts of 2 million origi original ballot images from 70 plus Georgia counties are missing. Yeah, it's, and uh, this is what the Guardian and the Daily Mail and the New York Times and everybody simply will not report. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we clearly need to do more on that subject, but this, this one I want to bring in and I've got to push you a little bit because we're, we're watching the clock here, but this is Texas scorecard. And what, what, what's being discussed here? Well, it, it's, it's about immigration. Um, let's read you about this. Shortly after President Joe Biden's inauguration, the number of encounters with unaccompanied minors along the southern border skyrocketed, skyrocketed seemingly overnight in the fifth federal fiscal year of 2021, the total number of encounters with unaccompanied children was almost 147,000, more than tripling the previous fiscal year's totals. Um, so what we've got here is a large movement of uh, children. And I'll, I'll bring you in just a second, Mark. Let me just cover a bit more of the material you were mm -hmm. kind enough to give us. This is Newsmax here. Max here, more than 70 secret flights have reportedly carried border migrants to Florida. I found this article utterly incredible when I read it, but just to add the little package, let's have a, a listen to the next clip and then I'll bring you in for some comment. Welcome back to American Agenda. Um, Mr. Biden's border crisis is now being felt in the state of Pennsylvania. According to a new report, flights carrying illegal immigrants are now landing in the Keystone State. These flights apparently happening in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness. And joining us now to discuss Pennsylvania Congressman and House Foreign Affairs Committee member Representative Dan Muser, who recently sent a letter to the Biden administration asking for transparency on this report. Uh, Congressman, thank you very much for joining us. Um, have you received any answers? Let's just begin there. Yes, Heather, I did. Um, HHS did respond. We were able to have a meeting with them uh, about a week and a half ago. Uh, they answered many of our questions. Many questions went unanswered as to why this would be being done in such a clandestine manner. Uh, that's so uh, in that report, which again we'll make available to people, uh, what he goes on to say is, well, he says questions weren't answered. We had to go to the airport to actually find out ourselves what was happening. Uh, Mark, just give us a little bit on this. We'll discuss it more in extra time. Yeah, this is part and parcel of what's been going on um, where these migrants, many of them children and minors, some of them teens, a few adults, are flown to Florida in overnight flights and Florida officials are given no, no warning, no advance notice. And Moiser representative there, the Congressman is talking about Pennsylvania, uh, overnight flights into central and Eastern Pennsylvania, um, dozens and dozens, hundreds and hundreds at a time. 
many of them children, and no one knows, including Sheena Rodriguez, some of my best firsthand border sources, no one can yet ascertain exactly where these children are going. But the U.S. government, in the opinion of many, and these are good sources, is really involved in trafficking. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a process of moving children into the country, not telling people where they're going, not giving the communities they're going to advanced warning, and no one knowing the no one knowing, excuse me, the ultimate destination and um, whereabouts of these kids, and it raises a lot of very uncomfortable questions in a country that's been plagued by kids being sold into sexual slavery, which goes back into the Nebraska affair decades ago, and that involving political elites, as the Washington Times revealed, even involving the Bush family. And granted, I'm extrapolating, but it raises a lot of red flags that have been raised before. And so okay. it's very concerning. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, a couple of uh, quick adverts. We've got the UK Column Scottish Gathering, uh, which is uh, Tuesday the 16th of August, 7.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. The Glow Centre, Muir Street, Motherwell. Uh, David, you're going to be there with uh, Alex. And I'll just put the second one up. Uh, we've got Wednesday the 17th of August, 7 p.m. at the Pierce Institute, Govan Road a public meeting with speakers from UK Column, David Scott and Alex Thompson, with Eddie Maguire chairing. Uh, don't know whether you want to add a little bit to, to, uh, to our the, advert there. The second meetings, yeah, the second meetings are basically an anti-war meeting, uh, and it'll be focusing to a considerable degree on Ukraine and, and Russia and the West's policies regarding uh, the ongoing conflict. Uh, the first meeting is, is going to be much less formal, uh, you will be able to ask us anything. Uh, there will be teas and coffees and chat and debate and uh, a, quite a good deal of laughter, I hope. Okay, excellent. And uh, we also want to give people a reminder that Alternative uh, View is coming up and uh, UK Column has been doing work in the background to help support the Alternative View team in kickstarting this event, which is on the 4th of September. Uh, if you go to the link there, you can book your ticket. And we are saying, please, please support this because it will enable us to get the full alternative uh, view events up and running. And uh, we'd also like to give a very big thank you and well done to the Child Protection in Wales with Lou Collins from Liberty Tactics that uh, were operating all over the weekend in order to raise money for legal fees to allow this challenge of the Welsh Government over school uh, uh, relationship and sex education. I believe that they raised about £6,000 over the weekend to help to help push this total up. So well done to the team. Um, okay, uh, sticking with the free speech uh, uh, situation, um, the online safety bill has been getting quite a bit of coverage over the last uh, few days. Uh, this is the BCS, British Computer Society, uh, online safety bill not fit, fit for purpose, say tech experts. So let's just choose a couple of quotes from this. Uh, the legislation uh, would have a negative effect on freedom of speech. Most IT specialists, brackets 58%, told BCS. Only 19% felt the measures proposed would make the internet safer, with 51% saying the law would not make it safer to be online. Uh, that Rob Derry, the chief executive of BCS, uh, said there is real need to prevent online harm, but this law only goes part way to trying to achieve that. The aim should be to prevent hatred and abusive online behaviours by stopping harmful material appearing online in the first place. And that takes a mix of both technical and societal changes. So uh, in this survey, we have a recognition that uh, the bill is going to have a pretty chilling effect on free speech, but the BCS themselves uh, are really calling for uh, even more oh, draconian yeah. Uh, activity there, but uh, let's look at, uh, this is uh, Politics Home, the House, uh, and a delayed online safety bill puts us all at risk, they say, because they want it uh, done now, not in September or October after the new uh, leader of the Tory party. Uh, Sir Stephen Timms MP, they quote, uh, who chairs the Work and Pension Select Committee, is one of those concerned that pausing uh, the passage of the online safety bill runs the risk of legislation falling out of step with technology, because Technology is moving so fast, Brian, that in six months it'll already have moved so far ahead that the bill will no longer be fit for yeah. purpose. It's an interesting statement that technology is driving human beings, not, well, not we are the ones here to enjoy life. 
Uh, well, well, yes, uh, but he said it's deeply frustrating that this much needed legislation is being further delayed. People are losing their savings online to online financial scams. Google searches lead to adverts promising attractive returns from plausible sounding providers who are in fact crooks. Uh, this is nonsense. The truth is that the uh, legislation will do nothing to deal with the plethora of online scams that there are at the moment. Most, and this is not a racist statement, it's just a simple fact, most of which are run out of India, uh, and uh, they are using not just the internet, but mobile phone networks uh, mm. uh, and so on. So uh, there's much more to, to look at there, and it's not a justification for the effect on freedom of speech. Uh, and then we've got the Telegraph here, who are taking actually a, a, quite a, a reasonable position on this. Uh, this headline from a couple of days ago, uh, tweaking the online safety bill isn't good enough. It needs a fundamental overhaul. And they say much of the criticism in recent weeks is focused on the legal but harmful provisions. The bill requires the largest social media firms uh, to include in their terms and conditions how they will tackle certain categories of legal material as determined by the Secretary of State. The indicative list includes abuse and harassment and health and vaccine misinformation, but this can easily be reinterpreted. And to give an example that Labour's Lucy Paul has already suggested that it can include climate denial. Uh, the article goes on to say this means the bill requires the tech companies to take on a quasi-judicial role using automated systems without the usual protections of criminal process. It also explicitly in the latest amendments lowers the threshold for what the companies must re uh, remove to any content that they have, quote, reasonable grounds to infer could be illegal. And the article ends by saying the online safety bill has truly gotten out of hand. It now reaches an immense 230 pages and contains the word must 437 times. The next prime minister must go down further. And there's no irony there at all. The next prime minister must go down further than cosmetic changes. Uh, it must go further than cosmetic changes. The bill should be withdrawn from parliament and reviewed from first principles to develop stripped back to a framework that uh, tackles serious criminal behavior and protects children without infringing on fundamental rights or undermining innovation. Uh, this means going much further than either Truss or Sunak currently envisages. And while that is quite a, a relatively positive article in the sense that uh, somebody has finally recognized what we've been talking about for the last three years, nonetheless, uh, you know, this, uh, the, the bill and the bill does need to be removed completely and stripped back. Uh, there's still uh, a willingness to, to not recognize the fact that the main target for this bill is freedom of speech and protection of children and online scams was never really what it was about. Um, and just to sort of reinforce this, two headlines here, one from the Washington Post, big tech tried to quash Russian propaganda, Russia found loopholes, uh, and Associated Press, a related article, Russian disinformation spreading in news ways despite bans. And the quote from this is that NewsGuard, a New York-based firm that studies and tracks online misinformation, has now identified 250 websites actively spreading Russian disinformation about the war, with dozens of new ones added in recent months. Now, what's interesting is that NewsGuard isn't, isn't publishing this list. Here's their page here, Russia, Ukraine Disinformation Tracking Center, 252 websites spreading war disinformation and the top myths they publish. Uh, and this is the only information that they publicly disseminate, that there are 118 English language websites, 42 French language websites, 22 German language websites, 28 Italian language websites, and others, 42. That's all we can know about it unless we write to them and ask for the list, uh, if we're very lucky to get it. Uh, but the point here is that, uh, you know, th this is really what it's about, David, is uh, Russian disinformation or, in fact, any information which is counter to the government's narrative. Yeah. Well, exactly so. And this is what Alina Lip was finding. Uh, you speak out in ways which she believes to be correct. She may be correct, she may not be correct, but her speaking out and giving her view is now uh, resulting in her bank account being frozen, her father's bank account, her mother's bank account being frozen, and she's facing three years in prison. This is totalitarian. This is liberal totalitarianism. And uh, it's uh, creeping in everywhere. Um, so let's come back to the uh, the Guardian here. And uh, the headline is Authors on the Salman Rushdie Attack. A Society Cannot Survive Without Free Speech. That's a fairly Yeah, uh, so here we've got the Guardian. Is, the Guardian speaking up for free speech. Hooray. 
Um, and uh, so the, the quote uh, writer, uh, Margaret Atwood, um, who says, quote, freedom of expression was foremost amongst these principles that, uh, that Salman Rushdie uh, embodied. Uh, once a yawn-making liberal platitude, this concept has now become a hot-button issue since the extreme right has attempted to kidnap it, kidnap it in the service of liable lies and hatred, and the extreme left has tried to toss it out of the window in service of their vision of earthly perfection. Now, I think even that is quite an interesting little uh, examination of the situation, because here we've got a left-wing le writer realising that the left-wing are anti-free speech, but uh, characterising those who say things she doesn't agree with as um, basically putting forward misinformation, liable lies and hatred. So that's not awfully free speech friendly for an article uh, endorsing free speech. But of course, if you go back a little, uh, a little while on The Guardian's back catalogue, it gets much worse. So we've got one from September 2019, the myth of the free speech crisis, how overblown fears of fears of censorship have normalised hate speech and silenced minorities. Nezreen Malik, uh, we challenged this instrumentationalisation, gosh, there's not enough nouns in the English language for this lady, by reclaiming the true meaning of, the free, of freedom of speech, which is freedom to speak rather than the right to speak without consequence. With the, what happened to Salman Rushdie, the consequences she had in mind, I'm not sure. Challenging hate speech more forcefully, being unafraid to contemplate banning, uh, no platforming when we think it's harmful to the public good. So it's all about the greater good, uh, gentlemen. Uh, and being tolerant of objection to them when they do speak. Like the political correctness myth, the free speech crisis myth is a call for orthodoxy, for passiveness in the face of, of assault. So... The Guardian, just two years ago, three years ago, was saying the free speech crisis is a myth. It doesn't exist. Don't worry at all. And, uh, well, they're not saying that anymore. But even now, they're not exactly uh, getting on board with the importance of being able to speak your mind freely and without fear for the consequences. Because it's, they're talking about, well, there should be consequences. But in fact, if people are mired by fear, they will not speak out, they'll self-censor, and this is how totalitarianism works. Um, for another example, we go to the Telegraph, and this is uh, part of the long march through the institutions. So a university has forced out a diversity advisor for supporting bullied Professor Kathleen Stock. Um, so the, the diversity advisor sided with Stock, uh, and this was viewed as unacceptable uh, by activists within uh, a union um, and uh, anonymous staff in a trade union at the university who describe themselves as senior LGBT plus champions said his signature uh, was particularly concerning given his role in uh, EDI work at the university. So because he's meant to be defending diversity, um, his attempt to defend diversity of opinion and stop someone being hounded out of their job for their opinion, that makes it unacceptable for him to stay in post. So he, he got uh, moved from his post um, and then, then he felt he had no option but to quit the university. Um, and he's warning of the far left, uh, they've hijacked important issues and senior leaders in the university have folded under the pressure uh, that are and are actively removing anyone who dares to make their legal views known. Uh, the university told him in, uh, in letters that his treatment was appropriate in, appropriate in circumstances as a formal process would not have been a supportive one for you, it said. So again, once again, we see there is no due process. Nowhere in any of this is there any due process. Um, and then to come back again to the implications of the attack on Salman Rushdie, um, a, a case that we that we um, didn't cover at the time and perhaps really should have. Um, this is uh, the attack on a Christian preacher at Speaker's Corner. That's Hatun Tash, um, who's a, a, a convert from Islam and who has a ministry. Uh, seeking to preach the gospel to Muslims. And she speaks at, at, at Speaker's Corner, and she was stabbed. She was stabbed in the head. Um, and uh, he received a Daily Mail reporting on this. ITV also reported on it. Um, 
they, they said Speaker's Corner is turning hostile, um, says a Christian preacher who's slashed in the head. She, she's quoted as saying, it's a good platform for me to get challenged about my faith and also to critique the ideology of Islam, said Hatun. Uh, Speaker's Corner is a small place and sometimes it's difficult for individuals to control their emotions. I was dragged to the floor and slapped. Counter-terrorism officers are leading the investigation into the attack, but the incident is not being treated as terrorism-related at the time. Police are keeping an open mind about possible motives. Well, there we go. Now, the police open mind uh, got a little bit worse because we see here um, the, the spiked is, is, is investigating this, um, asking how the Speaker's Corner became a war zone um, and asking also what's happened to the press in this. And she said, I wouldn't say I've been abandoned by the press, but I would say when it comes to certain groups, the media are very quick to keep silent. The media are choosing not to talk about it because there's a problem with Islam. There's a belief, she goes on, that if we don't talk about it, everyone will be happy and people will forget. Um, so uh, we're, we're, we're uh, she says, the UK, Tash says, is known for giving dignity and honour to human beings. We need to make sure that remains the case, and amen to that. Uh, but this story gets a little darker because uh, it, she has got into trouble with the police, despite being the victim in all of this. Uh, despite being entirely peaceful. Um, and here we see the critics saying the police are enabling Islam Islamic intolerance. Um, uh, so after the attack, Hatun was not deterred. Um, she continues to preach bravely at Speaker's Corner, the home of free speech, every Sunday. Just days ago, on Sunday the 26th of June, she was arrested by police after having her Quran forcibly stolen from her. So she was arrested she was a victim of a crime and she was arrested. And actually, she spent quite a, quite a number of hours in the cells. Um, and this seemed to be an, an attempt to intimidate her to stop speaking. This is carried out by the police. This is extremely worrying. Uh, the critic finishes off here. Um, uh, why is it that Hatun keeps getting arrested for committing no crime? while those who commit actual crimes are not apprehended by the police? The police are meant to carry out the duties without fear or favour. And they're not doing so. And uh, this is an item we're going to come back to um, in uh, an interview series, uh, in, in, in an interview that we've done with Dia Moodley, a pastor at uh, Spirit of Life Reformed Baptist Church in Bristol. This will be up in a few, uh, a few days' time uh, on the column. And, and it looks into the persecution that has happened in Bristol of a church preaching in the street and the attempts and use of essentially legal threats by the police to shut down what is an entirely lawful activity protected by numerous uh, uh, numerous legislation concerning uh, free speech, concerning uh, civil liberties, concerning um, just how, how people are meant to conduct themselves in the UK, concerning the common law. These people are peaceful and yet the police are closing them down. And why? They're closing them down in response to complaints from people who don't like what's being said. That is not the purpose or the duty of the police. Yeah. Indeed. OK, well, look, we'll finish off with uh, a little bit of economic news. And uh, I, was, I was fascinated by this, uh, this article here in the Mirror. Hundreds of bus routes face acts with cliff edge deadline this week. Now, I was traveling a bit over the last couple of weeks, Brian, and the traffic on the British roads was just appalling and it seemed to be exacerbated by the uh, the various uh, traffic management systems, the smart motorways and whatnot. But anyway, the attack is now on public transport as well. Uh, and what's the cause of this? Well, the, the bus, uh, uh, particularly the buses, uh, had a £200 million bung from the government to deal with, uh, to get the bus routes, uh, the bus companies through the COVID crisis. That's being withdrawn uh, at the end of uh, September. Uh, and so uh, many people are expecting a, a lot of bus routes to be cancelled at that time. They're already talking about it. Uh, this is all as a result of cost, the, the, the cost of uh, fuel and so on, uh, putting pressure on the bus services. Uh, but it's not just uh, bus services. Schools are going to be closing, uh, at least reducing their function. Uh, so schools are considering a three-day week, says the independent, because of soaring energy bills uh, and rising teacher salaries. Uh, and uh, that, But... <laughs> The problem is, what do you do with your children then? And uh, well, the BBC is saying that uh, nurseries are closing 
uh, because parent and parents being left without childcare as providers are shutting because they can't afford uh, the uh, fuel bills and the energy costs uh, and so on. And they are also having uh, staff uh, problems. But David, uh, we don't need to worry uh, because Liz Truss, who is likely to be our next prime minister, is riding to the rescue. And she's published this article in the Mail Plus and also in the Sunday Mail, uh, my clear, consistent, conservative plan. Uh, and what's she saying? She's saying a growing economy is about more than numbers on a tre treasury spreadsheet. It's about supporting real people and showing that a rising tide really does lift all ships. And that is about as specific as this article gets on what she intends to do economically. Uh, it is a pathetic article and her entire approach is pathetic. Uh, the, the Financial Times uh, today uh, saying that she was talking about uh, breaking up the treasury. Uh, well, one of the things that uh, she was wanting to do was to reverse the decision to move uh, Dominic Cummings' economic uh, board, I can't remember the exact title of it, into the Treasury. And she's talking about bringing that back into number 10 because that's going to solve all the problems. Uh, David, I haven't seen anything from this woman which is going to answer the underlying problems. And you and I have recorded another episode of the Distance Guide, or sorry, the uh, Magic Money Tree. Uh, talking about inflation, which will hopefully go up later on this afternoon or tomorrow morning. Uh, but, you know, this none of this is addressing the fundamental problems here. None. It's just uh, an arrangement of cliches, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah. But the one the one thing, there's only one data point that comes out of it is it's it's centrally planned. Liz has a central plan, right? The the um, the free market approach is we want plans from the many, not from the few. And Liz says, no, 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 we're not having any of that. We're going to have one plan, and it's going to be wonderful. And we've been there before, and we know how it ends. Yeah, it's extremely worrying. I'd just like to challenge her on a rising tide lifts all ships. Of course, the ships it doesn't lift are the ones that are sunk, and that <laughs> seems to me to be what's happened to the UK economy, and that has been deliberate. This is deliberate breakdown of this country it's orchestrated uh it's it's considered the plan is to destroy uk from the inside and liz trust as qm is a better title for her which is queen mercenary um she'd be ideal to do this okay uh david a couple of final slides these are both basically for mark because uh, they both look at america uh, the first one here is uh, in, in honour of the wonderful card game, uh, kids' card game Uno, which uh, I, I must admit I enjoy tremendously. And uh, the cards that someone's drawn here says, do your job or draw 25 cards. And you see there Congress with a fistful of cards, having decided that doing their job is not an option. Um, and uh, secondly, and this one I think might actually be incorrect, it's showing the deep state threatening the Justice Department to tip the scales in favour of the Democrats. I'm not, I'm not convinced that the Justice Department actually needed threatened. I, I think they may well have been happy to do this, but uh, perhaps Mark will uh, comment on that either now or in extra time. In extra. Yeah. Yeah. Does this one come up or not? No, oh, that is extra, extra time. Yes. Oh, oh, well, okay. Now I understand why. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. David and Mark, thank you very much for well, joining us. You are going to be with us, I hope, for extra time in just a few minutes. A very big thank you to our audience. Um, we have received a lot of emails about the fact we've, we've still got to get uh, Friday's news up. We're trying to clear the technical issues on that. So be patient. Uh, but to all our supporters in UK and overseas, thank you very, very much for your support. Um, it's one of the big things that keeps us going. So thank you. We will be back at, uh, well, we'll be back for extra time and we'll be back at the same time on Wednesday.